Hello again. Thank you, Chad. So like a week ago or so, um, Stephen and I were wondering, what are we going to preach on Labor Day? And we're like debating ideas, what are we going to do? And then Stephen said, hey, would you like to preach? And I was like, yeah, sure, what do you want me to preach about? He said, well, you are the worship pastor, so why don't you preach on worship? And so I thought, wow, what a novel idea. So I'm going to be preaching to us today about worship. We're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about what worship is, true worship, so on and so forth. And I'm very grateful to be able to do this, and I pray that it blesses you. So to begin, uh, um, John Piper, uh, who is a pastor, uh, he was a pastor, he's retired now, but he wrote like, I don't know, 800 books or something like that, but he wrote a book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. And it's, it's kind of a famous opening statement um, that, that really, you know, the insight that he captured in this opening paragraph of this book just really caught a lot of people off guard in a book on missions. And at the, in the very first chapter, at the very beginning of this book, here's how he opens the book and here's what he says. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate and not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is only a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And I remember reading that several years ago and just kind of being blown away at, at the importance that, that he placed on worship and really thinking through that and really wondering, wow, worship really is primary in the life of the Christian. I mean, I was already convinced that glorifying God was the ultimate purpose for the Christian. The scriptures are incredibly clear that the reason that we are created, the reason that we exist, the reason why we are gathered here today is to glorify God. But I, like many other people, had thought that missions and evangelism and serving and so on and so forth were the main ways that we glorified God. Worship hadn't even crossed my mind as something that was ultimate. I had always only ever considered worship as like a stepping stone to that ultimate goal of glorifying God. And that's kind of the main distinction between all of those other things, missions and serving and giving and so on, and worship. Because missions, like Piper said, exists because worship doesn't. There are countless people all over the world that do not worship God. So the reason that we go in mission, the reason that we share the gospel in evangelism, the reason that we serve our neighbor and love them is so that they may catch a glimpse of the glory of God and in turn worship him. That's the goal of everything that we're doing. And the scripture is clear that this is central in our lives and that this is the reason why God has saved us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, God's purpose is that we who trust in Christ might bring praise and glory to God. That's the reason why God has saved us and brought us to a saving knowledge of Christ, so that we might bring praise and glory to God. So if today you are here and you trust in Christ then your ultimate concern is to bring him praise and glory. Your ultimate concern is to worship the Lord. 
Now, my concern today and in, in, in what I hope to address in this sermon, my concern is that we don't have a full and comprehensive understanding of worship as the Bible understands it. I think that we've probably let the culture define for us what worship is more than the scriptures. And because of that, there's some misunderstandings that we have um, some, some presuppositions we have about the world and worship and religion that, that prevent us from truly being able to worship the way God has commanded us to worship. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where the Lord Jesus himself speaks about worship, what worship is. We'll unpack that. We'll pull together kind of a, a working definition of worship. And then we'll address a couple of things that unnecessarily prevent us from engaging in that worship. So some barriers that are there so that we can knock them down and, and, and get to the heart of the matter. So with that understanding, turn to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. Jamie read that for us earlier. John chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 19 through 25. John chapter 4, verses 19 through 25. Now, before we kind of jump in there, just a little bit of background about what's going on leading up to this passage. Jesus is passing through Samaria, okay? And he gets a little tired and he stops at a well that he sees along the way. And as he's there, he encounters a Samaritan woman and begins speaking with her. And he actually has a, a pretty interesting conversation with her. If you get the time, go back and read um, that entire conversation that he has. It's, it's really interesting. Um, but at one point, Jesus asks her to go and fetch her husband and bring him here. And the, the woman responds. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus speaks prophetically to this woman and he says, listen, I know that you don't have a husband. In fact, you have had five husbands and the man you're with now is not even your husband. And that's where we pick up in verse 19. So in response to this, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Pretty insightful observation. He just told her the deepest, darkest secrets of her life without ever having met her before. Pretty insightful observation, sir. I perceive that you are a prophet. But what did he bring up? He brought up her sin. He brought up the things that she was doing wrong. And so it seems like she, she quickly tries to change the subject here. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. She tries to change the conversation away from her sin to something about a, a debate about worship. Now, remember, Jesus was a Jewish man, okay? And this woman is a Samaritan. Now, something to remember is that in Jesus' culture, Jews and Samaritans despised one another. Jews were literally instructed to go out of their way to avoid the Samaritans, as even interacting with them would make you unclean. One of the reasons, though, why there was such tension between the Jews and the Samaritans was actually religious differences. Now, re remarkably, the Samaritans, they believed themselves to also be God's chosen people, just like the Jews believed. But one of the main differences, though, between the Samaritans and the Jews was that the Jews understood the entire Old Testament to be inspired by God. The same 39 books of the Old Testament that we have in our Bible, the whole Old Testament. Now, the Samaritans, though, they only held to the Pentateuch or the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the only thing that they held to. 
So that led, that difference in authority led to some major doctrinal and theological disagreements between the two groups, and they both considered the other heretical and blasphemous. They hated one another. Now, one of the major points of disagreement was surrounding the location of where the worship services should be held. Now, remember, at this time, corporate worship was very structured, very liturgical, and very rigid. You did not deviate from how the scriptures commanded worship of God to be done. You just did not do that. And corporate worship was also relegated to certain locations and certain times. The Jews believed that the scriptures commanded worship of God to be done in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, while the Samaritans believed that worship of God was to be carried out in Shechem on Mount Gerizim. So this is what the woman was talking about when she told Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, that's where we should worship. She was drawing attention to this age-long debate between Samaritans and Jews. But Jesus is not having it. He's not going to get wrapped up into this debate. He's not concerned with getting into debates about the location of worship. He's actually more concerned with clarifying the nature of true worship. Look how he responds to what she says in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? Neither on this mountain where he was in Samaria, right, Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem where I'm from, the time is coming, neither one of those places you're going to worship the Father. I find that response kind of fascinating because essentially what Jesus is saying is that neither the Jews' opinion nor the Samaritans' opinion really matters all that much. He's basically saying it's all kind of a silly debate, which was an incredibly revolutionary thing to say because these sites were considered holy by both camps by both religions, and, by, and minimizing holy traditions was just not something that a good Jew did back then. It would warrant charges of blasphemy against you. So what you see here is Jesus kind of, you know, rebelling against the status quo of everything that they had been taught and everything that they had known about what worship was supposed to be. So let's keep reading. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that's going to be kind of the, the meat um, of, our, of our text today. And there are just a, a couple of uh, observational nuggets that I just kind of want to throw at you. Um, we're not going to be able to get really too deep and spend much time on them. Um, but, uh, but I think it's important that I'm just going to pepper those out there to you, and, and hopefully they're, they're helpful. First, notice that in this exchange, Jesus minimizes the importance of tradition and heritage in regards to worship. The Samaritan woman said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. What she's saying is that we've always done this this way. This is part of our heritage. This is part of our tradition. My ancestors worshiped here. This is what we have always done. And Jesus, he actually shuts that down pretty quickly by saying not to hold on to that too tightly because it's all going to change. He's saying your tradition, the way that you've always done things. Listen, that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Now, if we were to apply that to our lives right now, that should 
have a pretty apparent application to us that I don't need to explain. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit work on you on that, okay? But now second, notice that Jesus says that God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So here's the little nugget that I want you to take away from this. If you want to invite the activity and the presence of God in your life, then put yourself in his spotlight by learning what, what it means to worship in spirit and truth and then doing that. Because these are the kinds of people that Jesus says God is actively looking for. If you want to invite the presence of God in your life, worship God in spirit and in truth. He's looking for that. And hopefully I'm going to help you learn what that means today. So that's just a couple little nuggets for you to chew on, but you know we, we, we've got to move on. Notice that Jesus says, that those who worship in spirit and in truth are true worshipers. He says these are the true worshipers. So if we're going to fully understand what it means to, be, to truly worship, we have to explore what worship is, first of all, and then we have to determine what it means to worship in spirit and what it means to worship in truth. So first, we have to understand what worship even is. Now, when we hear the word worship, we probably immediately, our minds go to thinking of singing and music and raising our hands and et cetera, everything that we, we just kind of did. And that's certainly a part of worship. That, that's certainly a part of it. But look, let's be honest. There are probably many of us in this room and many of us in this church, many people in the world that just don't like to do that. You know, shortly after I got here, um, I, I had a man come and tell me, he said, you know, my least favorite part about church is the music. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm the music guy, right? And uh, he, 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 he made sure to let me know that it was nothing personal. He said, it's nothing personal. I just don't like singing. I'm just, I've never been, I'm just not a music guy. I don't, I don't like music. I don't really like to listen to music. I don't really like to sing. It's just kind of one of those parts of the service that, you know, it's, it's hard for me to engage in because naturally I just don't like to do that, you know. He just didn't like to sing. But now, if that's all that worship is, is just singing, then that would mean that there is a large group of people just like that man who may perhaps feel that they're hindered in their worship because they don't like to sing. And maybe they feel like, I can't worship. But that's not true. We're all commanded to worship. And if we're all commanded to worship, then there's, we're all going to be able to worship. Worshiping God is the end goal of everything that we do. So we need to rethink what we mean when we talk about worship. Because in reality, singing and music is only a very, very, very small part of what worship actually is. In fact, it may even be the smallest part of what worship actually is. So to broaden our understanding of what worship is, we, we turn to the scripture, and specifically we look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual what? Worship. This is your spiritual worship. So worship understood according to Romans 12.1 does not even mention singing. It's not there. It, 
instead, what Paul describes worship as is the presenting of our bodies, ourselves to God as a holy and living sacrifice. If we present ourselves to God as a holy sacrifice, then that means that we deny or we sacrifice our carnal sinful desires and we fight to pursue joy and delight in God and God alone. That's what it means to present yourself as a holy sacrifice to God and that's what it means to worship God, is to fight for joy in God and God alone, to deny sin, to pursue him. And to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice is to deny or to sacrifice your own selfish ambitions for your life and to commit yourself to following and serving God in his mission to fulfill his purpose for your life over your own. In other words, to just live for God. Worship, according to Paul, is giving your desires, giving your life, everything over to God for that purpose. And then in verse, verse 2, he adds another layer to all of this where he explains the method by which we can bring our desires and our ambitions in line with godliness in such a way that it constitutes as worship. Look what he says in verse 2. This is how you do this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul here shows us the importance of the life of the mind in our worship of God. Our minds need to be transformed and renewed so that we can discern what is appropriate, acceptable, and pleasing to God. We need to think rightly if we are to worship rightly. And one other thing to point out about this passage is, is, is Paul is speaking to many people here. So he's saying, look, if you're, if you're all going to worship together, you must all present your bodies, plural, plural. Worship is, there's a corporate aspect to worship, which I think if we're all honest, sometimes we don't really think of it that way. You know, something kind of funny happened. I've been kind of chronicling for you over the last few weeks the, the journey that Lila, our oldest daughter, has gone through in going to school. And uh, she started kindergarten this year, absolutely loves it, okay? Even, even now, she just, she's been for, you know, a whole week, and she just can't wait to go back. You'd think she'd be tired of it by now, but she's not. And... Um, it was really funny. We went on meet the teacher night, you know, the kind of the orientation where you show up and we've been telling Lila all day, hey, we're going to go meet your teacher. We're going to go meet your teacher. And then we get there to meet the teacher night and there's all these cars everywhere. And Lila's looking around. She's saying, what are all these cars here for? And we're, we're saying, hey, everybody's here to meet the teacher. And she just had a kind of a quizzical look on her face. She's like, okay. So we walk into the school and there's all these students that are there meeting their teachers. And Lila's just kind of looking around, you know, and then we get in the car, and, and Lila, what's, what's the problem? And she said, I thought this was all about me. <laughs> she said, there were so many other people there, but I thought this was all about me. <laughs> and we said, no, baby, a lot of people go to school. This wasn't just about you. This is about everybody. Everybody got to come. And, you know, I think, honestly, that's kind of the attitude that some of us take into worship. It's just all about me. This is just me, my time with the Lord. This is just what I do. This is a personal thing. I really don't have to do it with anybody else. I got my own way of doing things. Listen, you, you do in a way. But if you relegate worship to only something you do and you don't broaden it to the corporate horizons that the scripture brings to it, you're missing out on a whole lot. So when you take all of this together, 
everything that we've, that we've learned so far, then you see that worship is a holistic activity requiring all of us, our desires, our lives, our thoughts, our hearts, our bodies, our minds, one another. This is something that we do together. So not liking to sing doesn't prevent you from being able to worship God. All you need to worship God is a heartbeat. And if you have that, then you've got everything that you need to worship Him. So understanding all of that about what worship is, the holistic nature of it, it requires all of us, and it takes all of us to be able to do this, I think it will also help us to understand exactly what worship does to us. Because if it requires all of us, then worship deeply affects all of who we are. Now, James K.A. Smith, he's a, he's a philosopher, and he, he's, a, he's an author. He's written several books, and he's had a very profound um, effect on me, impact on me in the way that I just understand myself and even the way that I understand worship. So I'm going to borrow a couple of terms from him and apply them to worship because I really think it, it's helpful to help us understand that worship is not just something that we do. Worship does something to us. And the effect of that worship is especially strong when it becomes a habit. So if you come here to church week after week, or like every other week, or, or once a month, or whatever, th then our practices and habits of worship have a formative effect on us. Now, Smith describes two different kinds of habits, thin habits and thick habits, Thin habits are habits that are just less meaningful and impactful, such as, you know, I, you comb your hair every morning. That's a thin habit, you know, or maybe you uh, brush your teeth every day. That's a thin habit. Or maybe you, you, you've got a certain habit to where you pour your milk into the bowl before you pour your cereal. That's a thin habit, although I would say that that makes you a psychopath. That is a thin habit. But thick habits are the much more significant and soul-shaping habits that we engage in, such as if we play video games all day, every day, or if we subject ourselves to listening to just inflammatory, conspiracy theory-laden talk radio all day, then these things, these habits that we engage in, they deeply form us, they shape us, and they make us who we are. But now also in that thick category of habits is religious activities. So like Bible reading and church attendance, prayer, and yes, even worship. And particularly corporate worship. And that's exactly what we're doing here right now. Every Sunday we gather together for corporate worship. And particularly corporate worship has a profound effect on us. Now, I mean, think about it. If you spend years and years of your life attending only one flavor of worship service, then those years of exposure to that certain kind of worship are going to produce in you all kinds of ideas about who God is, what the church is, what the Bible is, what kind of music is acceptable, what kind of clothing is appropriate in church or not, etc., so on and so forth. So either for good or for bad... Our worship is forming us, and it is giving shape to what we believe. And all of these beliefs are incredibly deep-rooted. That's why they're called thick habits, because thick habits produce thick, deep beliefs. Most of us kind of have an affinity for the way that we like to worship, right? And this isn't just something that we came up with ourselves. It's been ingrained into us by our continual exposure to certain kinds of music and preaching and fellowship and so on. 
That's why if you go into a church and you change the music style, that has to be the potential to be such a divisive thing because that kind of thing touches on some very deep convictions that people have about what worship is. Our hearts have been formed and shaped to cater to certain kinds of worship, and it can be painful and it can be difficult when those presuppositions about how things should be are challenged. And listen, I, I just want to say, look, to those of you that are here that don't like to sing, and the guy that said that to me, I, I, I don't know if you're here or not. I, you still go to church here, so you know who you are. But um, those of you that don't like to sing, or, or maybe you're, hey, you're just not fond of the kind of music that we do or whatever, but listen, yet you continue to gather with us, and you continue to come here, and you continue to contribute and to serve. Thank you. Thank you. That is such a, a beautiful example of Jesus Christ, who Paul tells us in Philippians 2 to mimic when he says, count others and their interests as more significant than your own. So thank you. If that's you, thank you. We need you here, and we cherish you, and we value you. So thank you. So if worship is such a transformative and powerful method of conforming our hearts, minds, and our lives for better or for worse, then it is imperative that we get it right, which leads us back to our text again. Jesus says that true worshipers will worship in spirit. So what does it mean to worship in spirit? What is Jesus getting at here? Now look, there have been... Whole books, I mean countless books written devoted to this topic, okay? And there's so many aspects and, and angles that you can come at this, okay, about what it means to worship in spirit. Um, but for our purposes today, I don't have like eight hours to be able to unpack all that. So we're just going to kind of condense and truncate er everything down into, into something simple, okay? We need to understand that worshiping in spirit is essentially, it's just worshiping in sincerity. That's what that means. Worshiping in sincerity. If worship is an all-of-life activity, kind of like we just talked about, then worshiping in spirit means that everything we do, we do with sincerity and with all of ourselves. We don't just drift through life half-heartedly. We give ourselves living fully, intentionally, and determined to make much of God in whatever we do. And that's what it means to worship in spirit, to worship with full sincerity. Now, that does beg a question, though, that I'm sure is on at least some of your minds. Is everyone capable of doing this? Is everyone capable of worshiping in sincerity? And the answer is no, we are not. There is a prerequisite to everything that we're talking about today. And this statement by Jesus that those who worship truly worship in spirit acts somewhat as a double entendre to kind of clue us into the, deep, the deeper reality that must be true of us if we're to worship God in spirit. Put simply, we must be spiritual people. And the only way to be spiritual people is to be filled with the spirit of God. And the only way to be filled with the spirit of God is to repent of your sin, to place your faith in Christ, and to surrender your life to Him. Without doing that, your worship will not be in spirit, and it certainly will not be in truth, and it will not be true. The prerequisite to worshiping in spirit is that you must be filled with the Spirit of God. You must be born again. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 3, 
He says, we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Without the Spirit of God fueling your worship, your worship is fueled by the flesh, and that's not worship at all. Sam Storms is, a, is an author. He kind of expounds on this in better words than I could come up with, so I'll just kind of quote him. He says, it is the Holy Spirit who awakens us who awakens in us an understanding of God's beauty and splendor and power. It is the Holy Spirit who stirs us to celebrate and rejoice and give thanks. It is the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see and savor all that God is for us in Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit who, I hope and pray, orchestrates our services and leads us in corporate praise of God. Every time, every Monday, um, except for tomorrow, because tomorrow's Labor Day. But every Monday, I come into my office and I sit down and I, and I look at the, the scripture passage that Pastor Stephen's gonna be preaching on that following week, and I pray through, Holy Spirit, what would you have us do? What songs would you have us sing? How would you like to move through this? Because I know that if, if what we do is not fueled by the Holy Spirit, it's not gonna be as effective as it could be. It's gonna be fueled by the flesh rather than the Spirit. So in short, worshiping God in spirit necessitates that we are filled with the spirit of God who motivates us to live our lives, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, to the glory of God. That's what it means to worship in spirit. But there's another component there, isn't there? It's not just worshiping in spirit that Jesus says makes true worship. You worship in spirit and truth. You worship in spirit and truth. So what does it mean to worship in truth? This one's actually kind of a little, probably a little easier for us to understand because it just simply means that our worship of God must be based upon a true understanding of who God is. And we gain a true understanding of who God is primarily through the way he has revealed himself to us in the Bible. Now here's something that is true of my own life. I know this to be true, and, and I think that you know this to be true as well. And, and I've spoken with other pastors that have counseled people through things like this, and, and, and it has been true. That your ability to be enlivened and motivated to worship is directly tied to how much time you spend communing with God in Scripture and in prayer. A lot of people tell me all the time, I'm going through a dry season, I'm just not feeling God, I just don't really, just dry right now. One of the first questions I ask them is, how much time are you spending in the Word, and how much time are you spending in prayer? Because those two correlate big time. Because if you're not going to be able to worship God in truth, according to the truth that you gain from communing with Him through Scripture and prayer, what you know about Him, it's not going to be true worship. And it's not going to fuel your bones, it's not going to enliven you. It will feel dry, it will feel empty and hollow. If you neglect either of those practices, you will not experience the fullness that worship brings. And most importantly, you won't be able to worship God in the way that he has commanded us, which is in spirit and in truth. And so now I want to reiterate to you, both of these qualities, spirit and truth, are necessary for what Jesus says makes our worship true. And again, I quoted him at the very beginning of this message, uh, but John Piper, he, he helps us understand why these two have to go together. And I'll quote him again. He says, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of artificial admirers. But on the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and it cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from those, P, 
people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine, strong affections for God, and I love this, rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. Worshiping in spirit and in truth provides form to our worship, provides strength, vitality, provides substance, provides a life to our worship. So we need both spirit and truth if we're going to worship God rightly. But if there's anything that life in Christ in almost 10 years of following him has taught me, it's that there stand so many barriers in our way of fulfilling this obligation that God has placed upon us. There are so many things that, that crop up in our lives that you know, so, some are self-inflicted, but some are just the effects of living in a fallen world that prevent us from being able to do this and to do this rightly, to, to being obedient to this. And, and we're going to talk about a couple of those. One of those is, is doubt. Doubt will prevent you from being able to worship in spirit and in truth. Doubt about who God is, who Jesus is, who we are, what we're here for, what this is all about, what God's plan for our life is. Um, but biblically speaking, this does not need to hinder our worship. These feelings don't need to stop us from bringing these doubts to God. Look at, you may be familiar with Matthew 28. That's the, the passage that we get the Great Commission in, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Um, so you may be familiar with that, but what's interesting and, and what we often don't look at a lot of times is the two verses that precede Matthew 28, 18 through 20. 18 through 20, Jesus gives the Great Commission. In verses 16 and 17, there's something interesting that we see here about worship. It, it says this, Meanwhile, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some, what? doubted, but some doubted. When they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, the, the disciples, who were 11 at this point, because remember, Judas, he had betrayed Jesus, and the guilt and the shame of that had led him to go and commit suicide. So there's only 11 disciples at this point, and that's, that's who Jesus is talking about. These disciples had spent three years with Jesus. They'd seen his miracles. They'd performed miracles themselves, even. They had seen him down the cross. They saw him raise people from the dead, and then they saw him rise from the dead. And they touched him, and they spoke with him, and they ate with him, and they communed with him even after he had risen from the dead. Yet even still, here they are after all of this, still battling doubt. It's because we're not all-knowing beings like God is. We will doubt. Doubt is just a necessary byproduct of, hum of being human. Doubt is a necessary byproduct of not containing all knowledge. There are some things that you are just not going to understand. There are just some things that you're not going to know. There will be times when we're not as strong in our faith as we would like to be, and it can create a certain kind of apathy in regards to our worship. It will push us away. But just like it didn't prevent the disciples here, it shouldn't prevent us from worshiping God. Now, the best advice that I can give you to help you worship God through doubt and apathy is simply to just persevere and worship anyway. I know that sounds just like, man, that's the last thing I want to do right now. Exactly, because it's the thing that you need the most. Because think about it. When is faith more pure than when it is practiced when we don't feel like it? 
if faith is what it is, then it's most true and most pure whenever we fight against everything inside of us and we do the thing that we don't want to do because we have faith that it's good for us. We have faith that it's what we should do. And like we talked about earlier, the things that we do, they do something to us. And when we do those things motivated by faith rather than just natural inclinations, then I believe it actually becomes more powerful in our lives and how it shapes us. And J.D. Greer gives us some clarity to this idea. He says, many of us go to church thinking about how we feel, but worshiping is not a reflection of how we feel. It's a reflection of what we know to be true and what God has promised in his word. It is a declaration of what God is worthy of. Here's what God often and graciously allows to happen. As we declare it, we begin to feel it. And sometimes even the posture of our body will actually guide our heart, which is one reason we are commanded to raise our hands and shout in worship. When I kneel in prayer, I feel submissive. When I raise my hands, I feel surrendered. When I open my hands, I feel needy. The posture guides the heart. Worship is not a depiction of our feelings, but a declaration of our faith. It's a defiant declaration that says, I am not how I feel. My life is not what circumstances may make it look like it is. What God says to me is true, and I am going to act like it. You see the power of worshiping God even when you don't feel like it. Even when doubt pervades your mind pushing through that and doing this in faith. So when you doubt and you're confused, let your worship be a discipline done in faith and trust that God, God will shape your heart through that into a heart that desires and wants him again. A, a heart that pushes through all of the confusion and says, listen, I know this to be true about God and I'm gonna worship him for it. So doubt will prevent us from worshiping in spirit and truth. It will prevent us from coming before the throne. But there's another thing, and it's, it's probably stronger and, and the more relevant hindrance to us that, that, that we all feel, and this is the issue of, of sin. Sin will prevent us from doing this. Sin will prevent us from being able to worship in spirit and in truth. And I'm not talking about necessarily the sin nature within us that may not, that may not want to worship. I'm talking about the things that we do when we have blown it, when we have failed, when we've given in to temptation, then, then listen, I know, sometimes it takes everything that we can muster to just walk into these doors. I know, I have felt that. I've been there. The lingering thoughts of what you've done just kind of sit at the forefront of your mind as we sing, as you welcome your friends, as you listen to the preaching of the word and you just can't shake it. It can make you feel like a complete hypocrite just being here, like you have no business worshiping God. Uh, lately, I have been encouraged by a song. It's a hymn by a guy named Matt Boswell, and it's called Christ the Shore and Steady Anchor. And the second verse of that song says this. Christ the sure and steady anchor while the tempest rages on. When temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, 
deeper still then goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. It's beautiful. You may be here today keenly and deeply aware of your failures. And if I were to accuse you of being a screw-up, it would land with validity. But let me tell you that every single one of us on the face of this planet, we stand justly accused of making a complete shipwreck of our lives. If we haven't completely ruined our lives by earthly standards, we have completely ruined them by heavenly ones. But what the writer of this hymn understood was that even when temptation has claimed the battle, when we've given in to our sin, when the night has won, when the depravity of our sin feels like it runs so deep and we just can't shake it, that even then the grace, love, and the mercy of Christ run deeper still. And that it's those moments when we don't need to shy away from Christ, it's when we need to draw nearer to him. And we know that a broken and contrite heart, he will not turn away. Listen to the words of the prophet Micah in the seventh chapter of his book. This is Micah chapter seven, verse nine. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. And you know what's funny is Micah wrote this as a song to the Lord. You will feel the weight of your sin, and that's a good thing. But cling tight to the Lord and worship him. He will bring you out to the light. He will vindicate you, proving that your worship of him was not in vain. So as you know, we have an entire book of the Bible devoted to the topic of worship. It is the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a book of Psalms, worship songs written to God. It's the second longest book in the Bible, and I bet you didn't know that. I'll let you Google what the longest book of the Bible is. And so over the course of about um, probably three years or so, um, this is something that we started doing before we moved here to Ohio when we were still living in Texas, Um, so about three, four years or so. What we would do is we would... um, eat dinner together as a family, and then afterwards we would read a psalm together. Chronologically, we just worked through the psalms, all 150 of them. We made it all the way through. It took us a while because, you know, sometimes you don't, you don't have dinner together, you eat out or whatever. But anyway, it took us a while, and, and we would concentrate on the psalms. We would read one every night after dinner. And, and I remember reading a certain line in Psalm 103 that stood out to me, and I have pondered this line for a very long time, for a, for a few years. And uh, it's something that I, that I always remember. And for some reason, and it has always brought kind of a comfort to me. This is Psalm 103, verse 14. It says, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows our frame. He knows what we're made of. He remembers that we are dust. More than any other line in the Psalms, I think that this truth captures the essence of what the Psalms teach us about the relationship between God and man. The Psalms contain the full spectrum of emotion and passion that is poured out before God in song. Love, anger, wrath, guilt, repentance, lament, happiness, blessing, cursing, 
prospering, lacking fear, hope, peace, praise, adoration, thanksgiving, and any and every other disposition, affliction, or perspective that is felt and contained in the human experience. All of these are expressed to God in unashamed, unabashed, and unfiltered force and candor. Yet God has seen fit to inscribe these honest and sometimes seemingly irreverent cries to him in holy writ and scripturated for eternity to be regarded as sacred utterances for this age and the age to come. Now why? Because he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. He knows what we have to offer. Everything that we have to offer. The Psalms, they give us a fascinating perspective into what it means to not only worship God, but to commune with Him. Because that's what most of the psalm writers were doing when they offered these songs to God. You would be hard-pressed to read, this, or any psalm for that matter, and walk away feeling the words to be completely empty and hollow. And that's because what the psalmists wrote was real. It was, it's the stuff of real lived life that they brought before God in worship. There's a commentator named Alan Ross, and he says this, Many psalms address God directly with their poetic expressions of petition and praise. They reveal all the religious feelings of the faithful. Fears, doubts, and tragedies, as well as triumphs, joys, and hopes. The psalmists frequently drew on their experiences for examples of people's needs and God's goodness and mercy. You see, the psalm writers, they were not afraid to bring all of themselves fully to God in their worship of him. That's, that's like what Ross, Ross says. Ross says that everything contained in the psalms is the religious feelings of the faithful. Not the unfaithful, the religious feelings of the faithful, those who faithfully commune with God and enjoy Him, they are not afraid of bearing their souls to Him, whether positively or negatively, because He knows their frame and He remembers that you are dust. Through the Psalms and the worship that they contain, we, we learned that in worship, we can bring ourselves fully to God without hiding anything. When we bring Him our joy, He rejoices with us. When we bring Him our sorrow, He weeps with us. When we bring Him our anger, He is patient with us. When we cry out for vengeance, He is long-suffering with us. He understands the dark night of the soul, Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is aware of our pain and our turmoil. Psalm 56, 8, you have kept count of my sorrows. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He is quick to hear our cries of repentance and our pleas for forgiveness. Psalm 51, 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And despite seeing the worst of us, he will move us to praise again and again. Psalm 150, verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. God receives the praise of wicked sinners. He regards it as pleasing to him. And he cherishes the adoration of his weak and feeble and frail people. And the Psalms encourage us to bring all of this to him in worship without holding anything back because he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So you've seen the plates here. 
It signifies that we're going to take communion today. If you have repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, then this is for you. And this, like singing and like serving, like missions, is just another piece of what it means to worship God. This is part of our corporate, our personal, our physical, and our spiritual worship. And ushers, you can go ahead and come up to the front and get ready to pass out these elements. But listen, we all know the struggles that we face whenever we consider this moment. Doubt, pain, our sin, these things that we've talked about. But do you know what this meal represents? Jesus says that this is a display of the new covenant that he has made with us. And this covenant is something that he initiated. And how trustworthy is the Lord Jesus? Paul tells Timothy, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, you may have doubts about all this. You may not understand fully what God is up to in your life. But if Christ has won you to himself, then he does not doubt your place in this. You're free from your doubt today to be able to partake of this. And as we partake of communion, we take of the bread and we take of the cup. And you know what the bread represents? It's the body of Christ that absorbed all of the same pain that you have ever felt on the cross. The Apostle Peter says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. All of your pain, he shared it with you. And just as he offered himself to God in the midst of his pain, you can too. You are free from your pain today to worship with us in this. And if you are racked by the guilt and the shame of your sin this morning, then this cup represents the blood of Jesus that was shed to cover every single one of those sins and replace that guilt and that shame with honor and with dignity. The only condition is that you repent. And if you've done that, then you can partake of this meal with holy hands and with a sincere faith and with a clean conscience. And together, corporately, as a family, we can all worship together in spirit and in truth. Ushers, go ahead and come on up front. If you would, please pray with me.